Hello and welcome to GMI Guitar Music Institute podcast episode 3. Today I've got a very special guest, his name is Nigel Clark, a virtuoso guitarist from Scotland who now lives in Ireland. I'm going to be interviewing Nigel throughout this podcast. He's going to be giving us some insights into the life of a musician, how he actually makes a living as a musician, as a performer and only as a performer, which is Although not a unique thing, but it's pretty much uh, a small percentage of musicians can actually say that. Uh, If you're listening to this podcast on channels such as iTunes, I'd encourage you to check out the GMI Guitar Music Institute website as it includes additional material that backs up this episode. You can find us at www.guitarandmusicinstitute.com. Nigel, welcome. Hello. It's uh, great to have you here. So um, now th- there may be a little bit of confusion because is th- am I right in saying that there is another guitar player called Nigel Clark from the rock world? Yes, there is, and uh, our Google pages are are uh, inextricably linked apparently, and uh, all sort of messed up. So he gets credit for stuff that I've done, and I get credit for stuff that he's done. But he's a different character altogether. He's a singer, a songwriter, um, and he's written some good songs. Had a couple of hits a, a few years back. Uh, but he's not me. I'm the jazz guy. He sings. I don't. That'd be pretty good. You could pick up a lot of his fans once well, they get older. <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we. He probably hates me as much as I hate him. <laughs> so, but you, you talk about jazz, but um, your career which has spanned, well, quite a while. Yes. Um, it didn't, it hasn't always been, you may always have been into jazz, but it wasn't always jazz. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely right, yeah. I got the chance to go to London when I was 18 uh, and uh, join a friend of mine who had just signed a record deal and I ended up uh, being a minor session player at the time, but I learned so much from the older guys who were doing regular sessions in London. Um, and I got to play with people like uh, Pick Withers, who was the original drummer with Dire Straits. Um, and uh, Pete Wingfield was on the first session I ever did. And he went on to produce uh, records. Uh, in fact, I think he still does in London at the moment. He was a fantastic keyboard player. So you can't help but learn from those guys. And um, I made a couple of horrendous mistakes, as you do when you're uh, new to the business. And... Uh, they soon put me right on it, and uh, I was embarrassed enough, uh, having made the mistake, uh, to never want to go down that route of humiliation ever again. What can you um, can you divulge to the audience what the mistake or mistakes were? <clears throat> well, the one in particular that I remember was um, I was asked. Um, well, I, because I was working with this guy who was a, a singer songwriter, and we used to rehearse a lot. Um, so I knew his music inside out and um, I was, as an offshoot of having done that, I got asked to do another session and I didn't know the material very well. And uh, I, I was asked to do some fills on a chord sequence that I didn't know. Um, and of course, as a session player, you're supposed to just go straight in there and play. And uh, so I made a complete mess of the uh, of the fills that they wanted me to do. And uh, I just remember the the awful words of the producer on the talk back. He pressed the talk back button. He said, uh, 
yes, we'll use some of that. And I knew that that meant that was like, sorry, <laughs> next. So um, I, I swore to myself after that, that every time I came across any uh, piece of music that I would learn uh, not only my own part, but I would learn how to uh, improvise uh, and play on any part of the of, of the piece of music. So, uh, and, 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 and I still decision, have that in the back of my head now. And does that decision... Has that decision shown itself to be good advice in a sense? Absolutely, yes, because uh, it means that you 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 have to master the, especially the the, the harmony part of of, uh, of tunes, because it's one of the things that makes music interesting. Is that there's so much, uh, well, there's infinite possibilities as far as um, uh, harmonic structures, if you like. Uh, are concerned um so to be able to um recognize the patterns within that and know where you are and know where it's going and to be able to you know deal with that in a sort of compositional and improvising kind of way it's it's one of the crucial tools of a of a uh, certainly a working studio session player so you saying that your session career maybe wasn't that auspicious but uh, you did then go on to work with a band that certainly um in the uk had quite some considerable success yes i worked with a band called hue and cry that that uh, had several uh top 10 hits in the late 80s early 90s and i was with them for about four years um and i uh, used to they were very open to me contributing uh, to their arrangement ideas so, so for maybe young guitarists listening in to, to this uh, episode, when you say contribute, how, how does that work? Do you get paid for um, contributing the work or do you get points on the album? How does it work? Do you just you just contribute and that's the end of it and they get all the glory? Or or, or how does it work? Could you maybe explain Well, yeah, they, they do get all the glory uh, or they did get all the glory as far as that was concerned. But I did get paid... Uh, um, I got paid as a session guitarist and I also got paid as an arranger for uh, the, the work that I did. I sometimes got paid in terms of they gave me uh, gear instead of money. You know, we came to an arrangement. Um, and on the first album, I got I got uh, royalty points as well. Okay, and just briefly, can you... Is royalty points, that's where you're given a certain number of points on the uh, complete... Uh, royalties that are coming for an album is that yeah, right exactly yeah, yeah. and uh, and is that a negotiable thing if people it find is. themselves in that yeah i mean obviously i mean most things in life are negotiable uh, if you're in a good position to to bargain for uh, what you think you're you're worth um i at the time uh, just kind of went along with what i was offered and uh, so it didn't it hasn't amounted to very much because uh the cost in those days of making an album was huge. So all of that had to be paid back before anybody would have got paid. But uh, I'm supposed to get paid before anybody else. But I don't think the albums actually uh, ended up um, recouping uh, its uh, so I think costs. So I think a lot of people would be interested in this, especially perhaps older listeners, because they'll remember Hue and Cry, especially if they come from the side of the pond. Yeah. Um, so how did you find that time it it was a did did you feel as a musician that 
you're on a tra- trajectory, an upward trajectory. Uh, did you find the large crowds that are playing too satisfying? Um, and was the music itself, you know, fun to play? And, uh, you know, just describe a little about all of Well, that. it was a very, very, very good live band. Uh, at one point there was an 11-piece band with horns and extra keyboards and percussion and all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, I mean, the, musically speaking, it was very interesting, and, and the fact that they were open to to contributions uh, from me and from other people, but mostly from me actually. I, I suppose I was the kind of third man. It was a, a, a duo of guy songwriters, and I used to throw in uh, a, quite a few ideas as well. Um, but it was a, a style that I re- very much related to, and it was music that I uh, that it was. Um, it, their, their music was derived from styles of music that I really enjoy which would be um, funk and jazz and uh, uh, music with, with a bit of substance to it so um, it was uh, and we had some really good players in the band too so it was yeah it was a lot of fun the audiences were great I mean in the sort of early days there was a lot of teenage girls at the at the gigs which was great to play to um, and uh, we played some huge uh, venues. We we supported Madonna at Wembley Stadium for three nights, and there was seventy thousand people at, at each one of those. Can, can um, I ask? Can I interject here? The, you know, when you were playing these gigs, did you feel this was the beginning of maybe not even with Hue and Cry, but continued success in those bands, or even at this stage, were you thinking about? playing as jazz a jazz guitarist I mean what was your thinking yeah about? well I always um, sort of flip flopped between uh, my love of rock and pop music and my love of jazz music and uh, it was quite a difficult um, path to kind of go along because um, the obviously the audience for jazz is just so small and then on the other hand the um, the audience is completely other other way for for pop music, and it's very difficult to to be seen as both of those things. People want you to be a jazz player or a or a rock player, um, which is something that, that I've always struggled with and and fought against. Because I mean, to me, music is music, and and there shouldn't be. I think the boundaries between styles are are actually artificial, and they they've been developed over the years by marketing people. I mean, in a way that needed to be done because you have to target your audience and uh, and sell to them. Um, so it's inevitable in a way that there are these pigeonholes. But for anybody who's got a, the broad taste that I do in music, um, it's a real struggle to, to have to tr- try and fit with those things. So at one point, I well, I, actually after I, I left You and Cry, I... Uh, made the con- conscious decision that I was going to be a jazz player. So, so just uh, I took you off track there as usual. When you were in Hue and Cry, playing to large audiences, you're back in Madonna and all the rest of it. Um, were your thoughts that you were going to get more work in other bands like this? Was that your hope and desire, or yes, uh, yes, it was, and. Um... That did happen because I because I had a, a higher profile, having worked with a successful rock band. Um, I was 
phoned or contacted by uh, other people who who liked my playing or thought that I might be able to make a contribution to their recordings or their live shows. So I did. I, I worked with um, uh, the Clanad singer um, Moya Brennan, who is well at that time. I mean, Clanad was one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, so I got to work with her. I worked with um, Gloria Gaynor. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, she's a huge star and a, and a wonderful person, actually. I really enjoyed working with her. Um, do you ever, did you keep in contact with her through the years, or is it one of these things where you do the work and then you go well, your separate ways? Well, yeah, pretty much uh, I, I did the work. And uh, she did, uh, her, she asked me to contact her manager and, uh, and put a quote in. For because I put together the band as well for that uh, right. engagement with that her. must have been was that a tricky thing to do to make up a quote you don't want to go in too low but you don't want to go in too high exactly yeah well I just had to pluck figures out of the air and this I, is a really interesting part of the interview I don't think many people and I certainly didn't know this that um, someone like Gloria Gaynor would approach someone and then through their manager they would have to ask someone to put a band together and then give a quote it's almost like uh, corporate music in a sense putting a gig together yeah well I mean musicians have to be paid so uh, and the the thing that made it attractive for her was that she we were all in Europe and if she was going to be touring in Europe she wouldn't have to pay the expenses of bringing an American band over and she was happy and she was delighted with the with the, the band that I put together and um because I got the, the in fact they were all Scottish, uh, uh, or living in Scotland at least, and uh, it was great that that she responded as well as she did to to the way that we played her music. Um, so it was inevitable that you know you do have to discuss money, and uh, so I um, plucked figures out of the air. I didn't make it too cheap. Um, which I think is always a danger um, because um, people do need to make a living. So um, yeah, I mean that was a, that was an interesting experience altogether. So from there, you then started on the lonely path of jazz. Well, yes, no, it was never that lonely, really. Because, and the thing is that because of my attitude altogether I never actually really only played jazz and I still don't only play jazz and um, because that's an, another narrow pigeonhole and jazz ne historically was never a narrow music at all it was always looking outward and pulling in influences from other styles which all the great music and all the great musicians have always done they never you never get a purist great composer or a purest great soloist in the in the jazz idiom or any other idiom, they are always the great musicians are always the ones who are looking out at all the different styles and grabbing stuff that they like and putting it into their music and I'm, including people like Mozart, uh, who was into Turkish music and Bach, who was into the Italian style at the time, and uh, I mean right all the way down the line. Stravinsky and uh, Bartok and those kind of guys uh, dipping into the folk traditions of their own countries and other countries and uh, in the 20th century as well all the, the um, great uh, classical composers and pop composers were always grabbing something from somebody else's territory 
and that's what gives flavour to the music and makes it great. Yeah, in, in a sense, uh, there are a lot of people who pigeonhole themselves, and as you say, music is music. Why not enjoy all of it? And and there is this whole movement, isn't there, towards I mean, creativity or, or, or creating new things. The, the marketing men always say us, uh, are always telling us of someone with the, the latest sound, but the reality is everybody's basically stealing from everyone else and, and merging it all. It's all a melange. Yeah, exactly. And that's healthy. That's the way it should be. The danger is if you if you focus only on one thing and then you get some very barren uh, music, which I have to say uh, there's too much of uh, at the moment. And I think that the internet spreads a lot of that. Um, uh, it's almost cult-type music and I'm including things like uh, gypsy jazz which uh, come stems from the music of Django Reinhardt who was one of these great musicians who came from his own tradition the gypsy tradition but he was fanatical about um, American jazz which was alien music to him at the time and he was a huge fan of as you know of um, Louis Armstrong uh, so he started to try to play that, but bringing in his own personality. And the combination, uh, miraculously as it happens, um, turned into something completely different. It wasn't, it wasn't American jazz and it wasn't traditional gypsy music. It was Django Reinhardt's music. So would you say, Nigel, that Django was probably, uh, in terms of guitar, the most important uh influence on your playing or would that be fair to say um he certainly would be one of the very big influences on on uh, the way that i play um i remember the first time i heard Django reinhardt i was 14 or 15 years old and i'd only been a few months i'd only started playing uh, a few months and i wanted to play rock music and I was trying to do that as best I could and listening to um, bands like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And uh, the um, I was I was practicing with a, a little guy that lived up the road as well who just started playing the guitar. And his dad came in one day and he said, listen, guys, forget about all that rock music, blues stuff that you're doing. It's fine, but have a listen to this guy. And he put on, an, I think it was an old 78 RPM Record. Some people may not know what that is, but uh, yeah. it's basically it was the revolutions, and uh, the am I right in thinking the smaller the the record, the faster yeah. it, it went. Something like that. It was the way yeah. the, the vinyl records spin, the speed that they spin round. Anyway, it was a very very old record, and uh, he put this on, and it was Django Reinhardt. Was it an original? I know, Probably. I don't think so. No, yeah, it might have been. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> was it crackly? Yeah, it was very crackly. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, he put this on and I was completely mesmerised by it because I knew that it was... Uh, I could tell instinctively that what Django was doing was improvised, but it sounded more like Mozart or Bach to me than than uh, Richie Blackmore or... Um, uh, who's the Black Sabbath guy? Tony Iommi. Yeah. yeah. Who also yeah. has uh, a couple of well problems... And having fingers. Yes, that's uh, a good story actually. Yeah. Uh, about his, uh, he damaged his hand in the same way that Django had damaged fingers. Yeah. Um, and in fact, he was inspired to carry on playing by somebody playing him a Django Reinhardt record. So, <laughs> Incredible yeah. connections. Yeah, there, isn't it? So, um, 
so I, I mean, and the thing is, once the sound of Django was in my ears, <clears throat> I couldn't get it out. You know, I had to go back and keep checking it out, but I couldn't get to grips with uh, the speed of thought uh, that it was apparent um, for him to be able to improvise at the tempos and with the, the, the harmony, the chords changing as fast as they do. And I, I thought this is just impossible. And it was a couple of years before I actually really got to grips with it and worked out that actually it is possible and there are techniques that you can you can apply to do it. That doesn't mean that you're ever going to be able to play with the musicality of Django Reinhardt because even now the great Django Reinhardt style players like uh, Stockholo Rosenberg and um, Birelli Legren, when you listen to them, they, I mean, they're fantastic players, but they are not Django Reinhardt. They just don't have that uh, genius. Well, I've got to be honest here, and I hope, hopefully not offend anyone that's listening, but I, I, my heart kind of sinks when I, you know, you go on YouTube and you see uh, film from these, uh, there's competitions where everybody tries to play like Django Reinhardt, and I, I just wonder how Django would feel about that, because... Uh, you know, surely we we should be trying to to be individuals in our music, and there's just something kind of like pouring aspic over the whole thing and, and keeping it as it is, and and therefore almost helping to only anorax would then link it. It sort of it leads to a dead end. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The um, it is a dead end, and um, Django. Do you I'm think sure. we're going to be on a hit list for saying this? Probably, yeah. But I'm I, I'm positive that Django would laugh his socks off if he was to come back and hear what's going on and the the legacy. I mean, he'd his ego would explode, and I mean, he had a huge ego anyway, which is you know totally justified. But um, he would he would scream with laughter, I'm sure, if he heard what everybody is trying to do. And the thing is, what the the gypsy jazz uh, guitarists have chosen. A very very narrow part of Django's history uh, to try to copy, because as soon as Django got his hands on a better guitar than those Macaferri style guitars, he he was playing electric guitar, and he he didn't want to play the style that he developed with with Stefan Grappelli. He wasn't interested in that anymore. He was playing bebop. He was listening to Charlie Parker and Bud Powell and those kind of guys. And um, he was trying to play their type of jazz. So are, are you saying, Nigel, that the people that uh, that take that small section, or, well, it's a large section, but a part of Django's life, you know, do you think they find comfort in that? They're, they're almost like, a, well, Brexiteers, England of 1950, jumpers <laughs> for goalposts, <laughs> steam trains. Yeah. Is, is it that kind of thing? Yeah, I don't Looking know. back to a time I... where... Everything was better, maybe. Maybe it is. I don't know. I, I really don't know what it is. The world is uh, changing in strange uh, directions at the moment, as we speak. But um, I don't know. Maybe there's always been the 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 sort of uh, the the fanatic, which is where the word fan comes from. Um, so the fans of Django Reinhardt, and they, I mean that part. I love that uh, acoustic nineteen thirties. Uh, sound uh, it's probably my favorite style of Django Reinhardt but the problem is that that was it in the 1930s that was when it was great it's never going to be great almost a hundred years later it's impossible 
And if people are instead... Should, should we cut them some slack, Nigel? Should we thank them for keeping the tradition alive? No, because they're not, they're not keeping... I think they're not keeping the tradition alive in a healthy way. As a, to come back to an earlier point that I made, uh, the, the way that music develops and the way that music becomes rich and wonderful and timeless is by looking outward and broadening uh, perspectives, not narrowing them down, not, being, not distilling them, not reworking them, not refining them endlessly. Uh, that isn't the way the great music happens. Okay, well, assuming uh, that we're still around, having not been put on some hit list, yes, <laughs> and uh, rightly assassinated for saying such things, let's uh, move on now to just w helping uh, the listeners understand. Many of whom are, will probably be guitarists, and maybe them, maybe many of them will be starting out in their careers. As I, I think I said earlier, you're part of a very small percentage of people who almost exclusively make their income just from performance. I don't know if you ever think about that, or, or, or but the, the reality is um, most musicians do have to do other things like teach to make ends meet. Uh, what sort of life is it as a musician who just earns his living from performance? Well, it's not... I mean, it's great. I've, I count myself very, very lucky to be in the position that uh, that, that I can actually um, make a living from from concerts is what I do. It's uh, a lot of touring, um, which I've always enjoyed. And you have to uh, you have to be good at travelling. You have to enjoy still going to through the security at the airports and and that sort of thing. Yeah, this is something that I brought up in an earlier uh, podcast episode two. And it's about dreams versus reality. Um, is there a difference between the, the dream of being a performer for you and the reality of being a performer? Uh, not really. I mean, I suppose in a way I'm living the dream, as they say. Um, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that I, that I get enough work um, touring, uh, working with the, the, the projects that I'm involved with at the moment. You, you have to be able to diversify um, and uh, work with more than one project um, because it's uh, it's difficult to to get you know to be touring like in the old days they would be doing two hundred nights in out of the year with the same band and sitting on a tour bus and uh, all traveling together and um, getting very annoyed with each other as well of course because you get to know people far too well but um, so those days are certainly gone the 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 venues are not really there. Um, so much, but uh, it is still possible. I mean, and I'm doing it. And if you have, uh, if you're involved in really high quality projects, um, and you have to have somebody who's willing to um, get on the phone, a manager or somebody in the band has to be have the ability to get on the phone and on the emails and do that marketing for the band. Um, I don't think that doing everything online is still um, going to get you to where the position where you're actually a, a touring musician. Um, it, it, it is interesting that point because there are some musicians on YouTube, they've got massive, massive followings, mm -hmm. 
but uh, I don't know that there's the emotional attachment that there is from actually seeing someone live. Yeah, that, I think that's absolutely right. Um, that we live in curious times as well, as far as live performances are, are concerned. They're not the same as they used to be uh, when I started out. When I when I started, there were so many venues, mostly sort of pub type venues, or you know. Uh, places that had a specific um, music room above a pub, something like that, um, and smaller venues where bands would be just playing all the time. They would have residencies in there, or they would uh, be, you know, touring around the country and and playing and all. And there was like a real circuit for for people. There was a huge appetite for live music, and uh, all the bands were writing their own songs it was all original music and people were all trying to be better than the other bands who were on the circuit as well so that competition was very very healthy because the the judges in in the competition so to speak were the audiences if you didn't get audiences coming in then you knew you were doing something wrong and you had to you had to change your repertoire or throw the guitar player out or get a better drummer which happens it sounds ruthless but i mean that's i mean those problems if there were problems with with your music became very apparent because you just wouldn't be asked to play in in places anymore so that sort of thing is not happening anymore people are learning from uh, in colleges where you're they're getting a lot of uh, false praise i would have to say because they're getting encouragement when they're actually they they need criticism. Um, I remember once actually, if I can interject, when you and I were uh, with a group in um, Northern Ireland, and we went to a school and we walked into a classroom, and I just remember your reaction because there was like workstations of keyboards everywhere, and you just shook your head and said, "This is not rock and roll." Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly not rock and roll. I mean, yeah, that's another very good point is that uh, in the, the days when rock music was invented, um, the last place that you would ever be learning would be in a school. Uh, you'd be um, leaving school early or not going at all in order to practice and play with your bands. And if, if you got the approval of your teachers, you knew that you were doing something badly wrong. I know we're going a little off beam here, but why do you think that whole hothouse of competitiveness and almost natural selection in terms of music is gone? Is it the record company's fault? Is it the internet's fault? I mean, I remember as a 15-year-old seeing the great Irish guitarist Louis Stewart on BBC Two. You will never see that again now. Uh, what has happened, Nigel? What do you feel? Well, I think, well, I mean, we might be going down some controversial uh, routes here. I'm sure but... people will enjoy that. <laughs> um, I think that uh, the problem is um, state-sponsored um, education. Okay. And it's it's an unnatural, well, not unnatural, but it's, a, it's an artificial um, way of um, bringing people uh, to their to their dreams um, it comes back to you alluded to this earlier didn't you about people getting praised when they should be criticised 
Do you believe in survival of the fittest? Um, well, not exactly uh, like that. But uh, what the the, the tight again? My assessment of how the great musicians all got to the point where they were able to do what they have done. Um, they what they did was they they learned their craft to a certain point where they became uh, self-sufficient and confident in what they could do. And then they embarked on a journey of discovery. Uh, As indeed we are always told we are on now, a journey. <laughs> yes, but these guys were exploring. Really on a journey. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the great um, musicians were exploring constantly. They had their skills, they had their techniques, they knew, and they were confident that they could do something. But they were always looking to explore. They weren't constantly uh, going back for more lessons, going back for more tuition to try and refine their craft all the time. That was that was a given. You there's a certain point where you just have to be uh, an an artist and say, okay, this is me. This is what I'm going to do, and everything. That I am going to express is filtered through my own consciousness, if you like, and you uh, don't represent to the public the likes from your various teachers and tutors. It's fine for people to influence you like that, but everything that you have, you you have grabbed yourself, and you know the reasons exactly why you like this aspect of music rather than that aspect of music. You haven't been shown that necessarily. You've discovered it. You've found it. You find, find these things and all those things are mine and now I'm going to give them back to the world. For example, I mean I'm speaking a very, in a very abstract way here but for example to go back to jazz, the great two great piano players Bill Evans and Oscar Peterson. Bill Evans has been quoted as saying that he thought he was playing like Oscar Peterson and that's what he wanted to do but his the the other music that he had crammed into his mind didn't allow him to just be a, a, a clone a clone of Oscar Peterson he aspired to that fantastic technique and he did have his own wonderful technique but the sound and the choices of, of harmony and the note choices were entirely personal to Bill Evans and he didn't sound I mean you listen to them you, they couldn't be more striking in the difference between the two of them it's, it's interesting because uh, with a student at university sorry um, he's looking at a <laughs> Bill Evans piece just now and it's, right. it's very much imbued with a sense of classical music within it exactly and that brings me back to, to my other points the, these guys are always looking to grab something from somebody else's music to make it interesting. No, knowing you as I do, Nigel, um, you were completely self-taught. Yeah. Do you feel that that has both coloured your outlook on education uh, to the masses in, in this non-organic way? And do you feel that that self-tuition aspect has made you the in, um, almost... 
no, I was going to use the word peculiar, but that that would be unfair. Special musician uh, that that you are. I quite like peculiar. peculiar. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. I, I mean, obviously, because I um, taught myself, um, I would recommend that that that's what um, people should do. Is there any place in your mind for structured learning? Yes, there is, because you need to you need to get some techniques together, and uh, obviously there are. Uh, you need information. You need to know. Uh, you need to know how to place your fingers on the instrument. Um, so that sort of thing. But there's too much uh, education now happening, or, uh, or, or maybe not enough people learning on the job. Well, yes, but but all constantly going to tuition and going to lessons is not a healthy thing. Um, that you need to stand on your own two feet at a certain point, and and I mean that. Again, referring to some of the great musicians, they've all done that uh, to a certain point. I mean, Bach went. Um, Bach's brother was a older brother was a student of Pachelbel, who wrote the famous Pachelbel's Canon, and um, yeah, and there's a story about how Bach, at the age of, well, he was a teenager at the time, um, stole a manuscript. That his brother was uh, um, well borrowed it. He didn't steal it. Yeah. But he he sneaked into his brother's room at night, when, and his brother had been studying this piece of music by that Pachelbel was giving him uh, tuition on. And Bach went in and he memorized it all. And he and his brother was very angry with him. I think he gave him a whack for uh, for uh, you know daring to do that. But. Um, that's the kind of attitude that that I really like, you know, where you where you have such a passion that you'll find your own pieces of information, and then you'll know that they are yours. the The, the thing I find quite dangerous as well is that that people the danger is that you become a combination of your teacher's likes rather than your own likes, and you'll never have that that personal connection with. Uh, something like a chord sequence or a, or a, or a way of uh, playing a line that you've found yourself and but, and you understand exactly the reasons why you play that it's not somebody's not been somebody has not said to you it's okay to do that if you play a, a kind of unusual type of line it's okay to play that unusual type of line well but it's not unless you've actually experienced it firsthand yourself if you find that out, then it becomes a different a different tool. Yeah, you actually know it for yourself. Yeah, self-discovery. On a personal level, I know all the things that have meant the most of them are seared into my consciousness of the things that I've discovered for myself. Exactly, yeah. Which, which brings us on to the internet. Uh, I I'm almost uh, don't want to ask you this question, but... Um, <laughs> I would, uh, before I ask you it, um, I'll, I'll prefix it with, um, it seems to me that a lot of young people are just cherry picking nowadays uh, on the internet. They take a little bit from this, a little bit of that, uh, that actually the amount of time people are watching videos is under five minutes. What's your feeling about online uh, websites that, uh, or not websites, videos that uh, supposedly teach people things? I take it from what you've said, you would not be too favourable to that. Well, I think part of the problem is that there's so much on there. And it's like, how do you find the one that is right for you? Um, I don't really know uh, how that goes. 
Um, what's your feeling about the whole internet um, aspect? Does it offer actually offer the professional musician any anything, or is it just all nonsense? No, it's not all, all nonsense. It's actually a really great reference point. It's having a li- like having a library uh, that you can instantly get into, and that's that is fantastic. And I've used it myself, and I do continue to use it myself if I have to. Um, if somebody asks me for a, a song or something that I don't know, that you can find it, and you can find different versions of it there. And it's really, as far as that goes, it's a continuing part of my own education, when by which I mean my self-education. Um, so I think that that's really great. I remember the, the first time I discovered YouTube, and it was not very well known at the time. Um, I was just I just happened to be looking for a video of something, and it came up, and it was on this YouTube channel. And uh, mostly the YouTube clips were people with taking films of their dogs running around a park and that sort of thing. But uh, everything is now on there, and uh, that that is an amazing resource. Uh, and I think that for me certainly those clips of like for example if I wanted to see Django Reinhardt playing there is a couple of clips where he's actually there and um, and full biographies yeah exactly and you can get something from from all of that but um, the actual tuition videos I'm not sure about I mean if there's a specific piece of information where that'll make things just really click into place for somebody I'm sure it's there but problem will be finding the right one for you yeah and knowing what is is actually good and bad advice but i i take from what you've said over the last 15 20 minutes really what saddens you is the lack of uh self-discovery yeah the lack of of, of people having that uh, mentality where they really want to go and find something new and find their own personality well, I remember when I started out, I used to read the interviews from all the, the great guitar players. And I've been lucky to have actually played with some of my heroes as well. I mean, uh, Jan Ackerman, the great uh, Dutch guitar player, was a huge influence on me at the time. And uh, I, I was doing a, a showcase in uh, France one time and he was there and he asked me to come and play with his band, which was a massive compliment. Um, so I played with him and also uh, Philip Catherine, who, the, the great Belgian guitar player. I played with him as well. He was cravatling? He did actually, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, 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 he favours a cravat. Um, yeah, so, but I used to read interviews with those guys when I was a youngster and they always said, you have to find your own personality. Don't copy what other people are doing. And uh, that for me has really stayed in my in my head and... Um, I think that that's the best advice, really. People, are, uh, the world needs different personalities and and uh, different different music. So we were talking, and of course, uh, you and me talking away. We always go on tangents. Yeah. Um, we were talking about making a living. You're on a tour. Is it a, a tour of Scotland or is it the UK? You're you're playing. Well, it's um, it, it's a bit of both actually, but uh, it's tour of Scotland uh, this week, and then uh, we. Where were you playing? We're playing Glasgow and Edinburgh uh, the, as the two main concerts, so the, the Queen's Hall in, in Edinburgh and the Cottius Theatre, which is a great space uh, to play in in Glasgow, and then we were up in Inverness, and uh, tonight we're going up to the famous Hospital Field House up on the east coast. So, which is one of our favourite uh, venues. That to play. It's uh, our broth. I always get the two mixed up. Yeah, yeah, it's a great venue. 
So we're going there, and then we go back home tomorrow, but then next week we fly to South Africa to do a, a couple of concerts there, and then straight back to do quite a few concerts. Uh, I think it's 10 days in England and Wales. So, uh, so we're kind of touring... The, the way tours seem to work nowadays is uh, you have to kind of go home for a couple of days in between and then come back. But you have to obviously be able to make that work financially for everybody. Um, but that's the way it works because in, in the old days you would string the whole thing together, you know, day after day after or night after night after night. And um, that's more difficult to do, especially the, the early part of the week. Venues are not really interested in, in, they can't get audiences Monday, Tuesday and sometimes Wednesday. Too much in telly. Too much on telly or people sitting at home with their phones. Uh, so, <laughs> and yeah. I know. So, um, you did mention that there you have moved to Ireland uh, and you've been there for a couple of years now. A couple of years. Uh, how how is the music scene over there? Would you say it's better than than in Scotland or or? No, I wouldn't say it was better. I mean, it's certainly as healthy. There's a, a lot of fantastic guitar players in Ireland, which is, is great to see. A lot of, I mean, the traditional music scene there has always been huge and uh, still as great as it's always been. The jazz been, scene is is big there too. Do, do you get many? gigs in Ireland I've not actually been really looking for an awful lot of gigs in Ireland I have to say although I'm living there but I did a recording recently with Hugh Buckley the the famous uh, Irish guitar player jazz player and uh, we did a a duets album which uh, turned out really really well so we're expecting to do a lot more uh, gigs next year with that and um, I've just finished a project well finished working on a on a debut album with uh, an amazing singer Colette Cassidy um, who as it turns out she is a jazz singer and uh, it turns out she's an amazing lyric writer and uh, songwriter altogether so we've um, we've uh, got a debut album with 12 original songs um, that blend together the Irish ballad style and the American songbook style as well so it's uh, really exciting it's a it's a yeah it's a good combination she's got an incredible voice too so so to sum up what we've been uh, rambling on about yes lots of rambling um you would it be f- a fair representation to say as someone who makes his living from playing music exclusively that a follow your dreams and b Stay away from state-sponsored education. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm too late for state-sponsored education, thankfully. Um, but yes, I mean, I think take it with a pinch of salt and don't see it as an end in itself. Uh, I think that's the danger. And uh, get your tools together, get your sound together, get your unique personality together, and then try some things uh, something else I do have to say is the world is changing very rapidly at the moment and uh, nobody knows exactly where things are going. Things have uh, politically and uh, geographically or geopolitically have um, been drastically kind of upset from, from the ways that we've been thinking about them uh, recently. And at times like this, this is when art and music steps into the into the void so to speak and it's a, a great opportunity now to actually express something something new 
because civilizations, when they're all done and dusted in a, a thousand years from now, uh, what will be remembered is the art and music and the arts in general. That is what we'll, people will see as uh, representing our civilization and what it was worth. Well, there you have it, folks. Sage words indeed from <laughs> Nigel Clark. And uh, I just have to say that, uh, you know, I'm a great admirer of Nigel's work. If you don't, if you haven't heard Nigel uh, and he's playing, there's some clips below. I would urge you to go and uh, purchase some just to help help him out. <laughs> and you'll help GMI out as well. But uh, all joking aside, Nigel Clark is, uh, without doubt, one of the great uh, players, jazz players and guitarists that Scotland has ever produced and is an international star that actually deserves a much bigger audience than, than what he has. Uh, that's not to say that he doesn't have an audience. He does, but he deserves <laughs> a bigger one. Thanks, Jess. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah. It's been fantastic having you here, Nigel. Been a pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks for spending this time with us, and I'm sure there's uh, a lot of people out there that are going to be really interested in what you have to say. If you're not listening to this on uh, the Guitar Music Institute, uh, get on over there. We'll, I'm going to put up some videos of Nigel playing, including I think there's one up of Nigel playing with Gloria Gaynor and with Hugh and Cry, but obviously his works with Koshka and the Tim Cliphouse trio who Nigel is currently working with all incredible music and uh, yeah, we will see you on the next one, or won't see you uh, hopefully you will hear us on the next podcast which will be, be coming real soon and is penciled in to be another interview so with another fantastic guitar player so from me Jed Brocky and from you Nigel Clark goodbye goodbye